You know, I was, uh, of course, you, you may think, why are we singing that song every week? Well, I asked uh, Joey and the praise team to teach us that song and use it as sort of our Easter anthem. So uh, something to really focus our thoughts uh, uh, on the season and what we're trying to focus our minds on. Uh, and, you know, and I was doing, well, you guys have a few uh, outlines. I only made a few copies. If you need an outline, raise your hand and those guys have one for you. Um, I was reading uh, just in the Gospel of Luke and the other Gospels, just going back over the whole week of Christ's life. I don't know about you. Sometimes it's hard to keep straight what happened on Thursday, what happened on Friday, you know, and Saturday. So in my Bible, I write that, you know, next to those verses, I write Friday or I write Thursday, you know, so I know. Uh, so it's fascinating. It's sad. It's uh uh, exciting to look at how our Lord spent his last hours. We don't often uh, get to see how someone spends their last hours uh, on earth. And our Lord's greatest concern in his final days was making sure his disciples were ready, uh, you know, for him to depart. Uh, making sure they had all the knowledge they needed to have. Uh, and because we are like them, you know, he, he taught them, but they were a little slow. Uh, Slow learners. Uh, some of us are <laughs> a little slow learners or slow disciples. Uh, but, you know, after uh, the they said the scriptures say a multitude came to the garden to arrest him. Uh, and after they arrested him, the scriptures say in all four gospels uh, mention this. There are very few things. Uh, that all four Gospels mention. So if all four Gospels are mentioning something, then it's important. And this would seem like something very insignificant. Um, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all mention that Jesus was led away to Caiaphas, the high priest. But Peter was following him. How? At a distance. It's kind of sad, isn't it? Uh Hey, Caitlin, I thought, who is that sitting with Ron and Dee? Is that someone from Boyle Heights? No, no, it's, it's Caitlin. So, okay. So he's following at a distance. And it's, it's kind of sad. Uh, what makes it even more sad is that we do that too, don't we? Uh, oftentimes we try to follow the Lord at a distance. And we'll see what that means. But... John, I'm trying not to laugh, but John's gospel is the only one that mentions uh, another disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And who was that? That was John, uh, the one that's writing. And he's not tuning his own horn. He's just recording. It says another disciple entered into the court with Jesus. Uh, John was the youngest, but Peter was the spokesman. Uh, Peter was the one that said, you know, even if everyone else denies you, Lord, I'm not. I'm even willing to die for you. And here he is following at a distance, uh, probably because of fear, probably because of fear, afraid to follow Jesus, afraid to identify himself with Jesus. This is one of the preeminent apostles, right? Usually when we name the apostles, we name Paul and then we mention Peter. <laughs> but here's Peter. Uh, being afraid of what might happen if it's publicly revealed that he knows the Lord. But John, the youngest, he goes and it says John was known by the high priest. So John went right into the courtyard 
was right in there with Jesus. He wasn't afraid. John spoke to someone in the courtyard, got permission, went out and got Peter and brought Peter in. But Peter wouldn't go all the way in. He sat out there by the fire. Remember, and you remember what happened. A few people come along and say, hey, we know you. You were with this guy. And Peter kept saying, no, not me, not me. You got the wrong. You got the wrong dude. I'm no Jesus follower. Once again, this is, I'm going to say, the second ranking apostle uh, who's following at a distance. Uh, But we know the end of the story later after the resurrection. You know, what we remember about Peter is not so much his failure, but his repentance and his restoration. Uh, And it's just a reminder that we all do that. Go with me to Psalm 63, which we touched upon earlier in our scripture reading. Psalm chapter 63, because the opposite of following at a distance is the way that King David followed God. And remember the setting for Psalm 63. The setting is that King David is on the run for his life. He's out in the Judean desert, the Judean wilderness. I've spent a week in the Judean wilderness. We took a trip to Israel. It is dry. It is hot. It is barren. It is dusty. They say one of the harshest places on the entire planet is the Judean wilderness or the Judean desert. He's not on the run from King Saul, but this time who is trying to kill King David? Do you remember? There were two people that tried to kill King David, King Saul and Absalom. Well, you guys are good. That's that's a uh, jeopardy question that nobody ever gets, you know. And who was Absalom? He was King David's son. So King David is experiencing extreme suffering. Just like Peter. But King David's response is different than Peter's. Peter follows at a distance. Peter distances himself from the Lord because he's afraid. King David may be afraid, but he runs toward the Lord God, not away. That's really important to remember. When crisis appeared, when threatened, Because he was identified with God. Peter keeps his distance. King David draws even closer. So Psalm 63 would be the opposite response to Peter's. It's very interesting here. Because whenever God's people gather, right? There's three types of people. And you know what I'm going to ask you, right? Only we won't do a show of hands because we want everyone to come back again next week. But you've got to put yourself into one of these categories. You have to. Number one, you're a Christian in name only. You're not really a true believer. But you just play Christian. You look Christian. You like to affiliate Christian. Or you are a true believer, but you tend to follow Jesus at a distance. In other words, your spiritual life isn't everything that it should be. Maybe there's sin in your life that you're wrestling with and you refuse to let go of. Or maybe you're just lazy uh, and you're not nurturing 
your walk with the Lord. You're not spending time in the scriptures. You're not spending time in prayer. You're not spending time fellowshipping or sitting under as much teaching as you should. You're not putting in the time of what's required to be a disciple. So you're following at a distance. I would call that nominal Christianity. Paul says that at the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ for believers, that some will be there, but they'll make it as if they're coming through fire. Do you know what that means? That means, like, when you fly southwest, they board you by groups, right? A, B, C, D. To enter into the kingdom of heaven as if coming through fire, that means you're the last group to board. And in fact, when you come walking through the pearly gates, there's going to be smoke coming off your backside because you just barely made it in. That's what he's saying. Because you haven't done anything for Christ with that great salvation that he has given you. You've just followed at a distance. Your salvation is real. You're born again. You have eternal life. But you've done the bare minimum. Then there are people, whenever Christians gather, there are people like King David. And as we read this psalm, we see how he would cling intensely, daily to God. He longed for God. He hungered for God. He thirsted for God. He was emotionally distraught when he couldn't be in the presence of God. His relationship with God mattered more to him than life itself. I know some of us are thinking, whew, what a fanatic. Come on, get over it, David. He's a real, he was the original Jesus freak, I guess. If you're a former hippie, you know what we're talking about. I see some of you ladies shaking your head, but I won't call you out. Psalm 63 is a psalm of emotional passion. He's in the wilderness. He's fleeing from his own son. And here is what makes him so emotional. Because he's an Old Testament believer. Did he have the indwelling Holy Spirit that was with him at all times like we do? Say no. Okay, some of you are like, uh, just say no, he did not. The permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a gift you have in this age that the Old Testament believer never had. Where did God dwell in the Old Testament? Where was the presence of God? Either in the tabernacle when they were in that tent traveling around or in the temple in Jerusalem. So David is away from Jerusalem, away from the temple. He's away from the physical presence of God. The Shekinah glory is what the Hebrews called it. And he was longing to be back in God's presence. And he uses this barren Judean desert as a symbol of how it feels when he's away from God. And some of you here can testify what it feels like. When you're away from God. When we've walked through those valleys, when we've spent time in those deserts 
and we're spiritually parched. We're dying of thirst, spiritually speaking. Sometimes it's thrust upon us where we don't even understand how did we ever even get here. Look at Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. We'll come back to that word in a moment. You should have a little number one next to the word earnestly in your Bibles. We'll see why in a moment. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as, I, as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is what? Satisfied. You need to say it louder than that. My soul is as with marrow and fatness, which would be the best part of the animal to, the, uh, to an agricultural community. And my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings Circle, highlight, underline. Very important word. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. See, that's the problem. Some of us aren't clinging enough when it comes to God. I know you husbands are like, don't be telling my wife to be even more clinging. We're going to have her cling to God. Cling to God. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. But this king will rejoice in God, he says. Everyone who swears by him will glory. For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. So one writer says this. Is, I think C.S. Lewis will see on the next slide. Says these people knew far less reason than we for loving God. The people who wrote these psalms is what he's saying. They did not know that he would die to win their eternal joy, yet they express a longing for him, for his mere presence, which comes only to the best Christians or to Christians in their best moments. I think we can relate to that, can't we? C.S. Lewis goes on to say, they long to live all their days in the temple so that they may constantly see the fair beauty of the Lord. Their longing to go up to Jerusalem and appear in the presence of God is like a physical thirst. From Jerusalem, he says, the Lord's presence flashes out in perfect beauty. Lacking that encounter with him, C.S. Lewis says, their souls are parched like a waterless countryside. F.F. F. Bruce, in his commentary on this psalm, which, by the way, he has a wonderful three-volume commentary on the psalms, which Lisa's taking some ladies through on Friday mornings here at the church. You're welcome to join. She's taking them through this commentary on the psalms. He says, most people do not even know that it is God that their souls truly desire. Isn't that a, a profound thought? They're seeking satisfaction in other things. Where others know God, but do not cultivate his presence, they do not long after him. 
You see, King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes that God has placed eternity in our hearts. You see, we are eternal beings. Whether we spend eternity in heaven or whether we spend eternity in hell, we are eternal beings. And it is very important to note that therefore only eternal things can ultimately satisfy us because we are eternal beings. But we try to satisfy our eternal desires with temporal earthly satisfactions. Fill in the blank. Is it not this above everything that explains the weakness of the contemporary church, Bruce says? Is it not this that makes us so hollow spiritually? We can be followers of Jesus. We can be born again and yet have a sense of hollowness within our soul. Because we are feasting on the wrong things. You know, God rebuked and condemned the teachers of ancient Israel. He says, you are digging for my people broken cisterns. You're building cisterns that can't hold water. We do the same thing, don't we? If you know me, it says seeker friendly. That's an inside joke. You get it? Okay. That's a phrase that I don't particularly care for, but I'm using it as a play on words. So some of you are smiling. Some of you are like, I don't get it. Okay. Just Google Bill Hybels, seeker friendly. Okay. Moving on. Psalm 63, 1. Look there again. He says, God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. Look in your Bibles or if you have a handheld. Do you have a little number one? You follow it to the middle of your Bible or the bottom and you find verse number one. And next to that number one, it should say what? L.I.T., which means literally early, early. You see, that Hebrew word comes from the root word meaning dawn, D-A-W-N, not D-O-N, like Don Lansing. D-A-W-N. Oh, God, you are my God. I shall seek you at the dawn. I shall seek you early Or it can carry the meaning earnestly. I think if you have uh, NIV, it says early. Uh, I think King James says earnestly. My New American Standard says early or earnestly. It carries those ideas. And so the early church picked up on that idea with this psalm. And they began calling it a morning psalm. And they would use it as a song that would be sung First thing in the morning each day, the Greek Orthodox Church. I think the Armenian church still uses this psalm as an early morning song. But what is the point here? The point isn't about liturgy or how to use the psalm. The point the psalmist is making is that the desirability is there for a regular, early, daily longing after God. And the question is, do you have that? Do you have that? It's not weird, it's not strange, it's not alien to wake up early first thing in the morning and look forward to spending time in the scriptures. That's not weird. 
I mean, even we as Christians, even we as followers of Christ, sometimes we. I'll leave it at that. I'm not going to finish that thought. And you should say, Amen. Okay. So there's a longing, there's a thirsty. There's, his point here is that the first thing I want to do each day is to be in the presence of the Lord God. And if I'm not, what does he say at the end of Psalm 63? One? If I'm not, then all day I just feel like a dry and weary land where there is no water. Hmm. It would be totally foreign to David to do anything each day before he went into the presence of the Lord. And you're thinking, Pastor, are you mandating early morning devotions? No, I'm not. See, that's what I was going to say earlier. And then I said I wasn't going to say it. I can't help myself. No, I'm not mandating early morning devotions. I'm telling you what the scriptures say. I'm telling you how King David felt. Some of you have your time with the Lord at night. Some of you have it during the day. But the point isn't the time of day. The point is the principle, right? That regular, that desire, that longing, that hunger, that thirst. Each day I'm setting aside some pocket of time where I'm alone with the Lord. And some of us don't know how to be alone with the Lord. Because we're so used to being at a distance. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. We, we sit down. We're like, okay, I'm going to have devotions today. And then you think, I don't even know what that means. Right? It, it, I mean, that's real, right? We're keeping it real. Right? I know I'm very white. I've been here, I've been here almost nine years and I'm still... Huh, okay. I still know more about cattle than street signs. Okay. To satisfy that hunger, that thirst for the things of the Lord, that means I set aside some time. I'm alone. I'm not texting. I'm not surfing the net. I'm not with a bunch of other people. Our Lord, even our Lord, would go away by himself. There are three things involved in spending time alone with the Lord. Praying, reading scripture, and then meditating on that scripture. Not meditating on... That's not what we're talking about. And wait for the Lord to talk to you. No, the Lord is talking to you. The Lord is actually... Yelling at us right here in the scripture, yelling as in a sense of getting our attention, meditating upon what the scripture says that I just read. Thinking about it, reading it again, thinking about the words, what words jump out at me, what are the strong action verbs in this verse? What you know, what's the setting of this? These verses I'm reading, you know, that's why we get really good study Bibles, because that helps us. Prayer, scripture reading and then meditate on that scripture. Especially we, especially us men, or especially we men, whatever. 
If I were to suggest to keep a tablet and a pencil or, or, you know, if you've got a place to take notes on your phones, especially us guys would be like, oh, I, I don't know. And the girls would be like, oh, we get to journal. No. No. Is that gender biased? Anyway. It's good to write things down. They don't have to be profound theological things. It's not like, oh, Matthew, I, I've read what you've written here about John 3.16. You're just like Spurgeon and uh, you're just like Jonathan Edwards. I can't believe it. No. It's something no one's ever going to see. It's just things you jot down about what you see here, uh, about some of the words, about what it means to you personally. But just to be totally honest, the vast majority of Christians in the church today, I believe, I'll say the Christians I've come in contact with, and that includes you as well as beyond here, don't know how to be alone with the Lord. We're experts at keeping him at a distance. Because when we're alone with the Lord, that's some serious intimacy. You, you have to be real with the Lord if you're alone with him. That's the first thing we do in our prayer time when we're alone with the Lord is we've got to pray that he would forgive us for our sins. Because we, we, oftentimes we keep the Lord at a distance because like Peter, why did he stay at a distance? Because of fear, but also because his sin had separated him from his Savior. As a believer. Sometimes we abuse grace because we forget that even as a child of God, my sin can separate me from my Savior. It's not quite right. It's like any human relationship. There's been a problem. And then it gets awkward, right? And we develop these strategies. Some people love the avoid strategy. Well, I'm just going to avoid that person because things are awkward. There's something between us. Some of us, like me, my personal favorite is the attack and tackle approach. Just. <laughs> but things come between us and our Lord. And so we're not comfortable being alone with him. We, we walk at a distance. But not King David. He's the opposite. Satisfaction guaranteed. Verses two through eight. David's setting up his words or his poem. It's really poem. It's a song saying. God has satisfied me in the past. God is currently satisfying me. Therefore. I have no doubt that he will continue to satisfy me in the future. Verse two, speaking of the past, he says, I have seen you past tense. I have seen your power 
And I've seen your glory. I've seen what you've done in the past. I've seen who you are in my life in the past. And in verses 3 and 6 through 8, he talks about how God is his present help. says, you have been my help in verse 7. My soul clings to you. Your right hand in verse 8 upholds me. Present tense. Sustains. Keeps me. In verse 5, he talks about the future where he says, I will be. I think it's verse 5. I will be satisfied, he says. Says my soul is satisfied. It's a better reading to say my soul will be satisfied. As with the marrow and the fat. Very healthy. Which is really weird because I was just talking to someone this morning about putting beef collagen in their drink. That's what, that's what this is saying. That's all the rage, right? The spinach, the fruit, the, the collagen, because it helps the joints, right, Jennifer? Yeah. That wasn't you that I talked to, by the way, but you're a nurse practitioner. so. But it was the best part of the animal, the very best. It was valued. I have a second cousin, Brad Edwards. Loves the Lord. He and his family live in Houston, Texas. But when he was a boy, whenever there was steak or anything... With all the fat on it, I would always cut the fat off. It's gross. But he would go around and take all the fat off people's plates that they cut off, and he would just eat it. Yeah, that's slimy, it's soft. It's kind of wet. It wasn't cooked right. But Brad, he loved the fat off of the meat, off of the steaks. I guess he knew better than we did, huh? That's that's very healthy. It was very prized, very valued. And David says, that's how my soul feels. He's talking about God's inexhaustible capacity to satisfy our deepest spiritual desires. Our deepest spiritual desires, which, by the way, we all have. Once again, because we were created as eternal beings. Even the one who hates God and rejects Christ has deep spiritual desires. We, we see, don't we, all around us a longing for some sort of spiritual experience, even by those who refuse to embrace Christ as Savior. Where does that come from? People want to be spiritual, but they don't want Christ. Where does that come from? Because they were created by their creator as an eternal being who worships. Every person worships. Even the unbeliever worships. There is something that we are willing to sacrifice everything in order to have or to get. And even for the believer in Jesus Christ, sometimes it's a struggle, right? Because sometimes in certain moments when we're walking at a distance from the Lord, we're worshiping something other than him. I think Peter was worshiping fear, which what was disappointment, 
this wasn't quite what he thought was going to happen. This isn't quite what he had planned on. But notice in Psalm 63, even though David is cut off from God's presence in the sanctuary in Jerusalem, God has not cut himself off from David. He's in the desert. He's in the wilderness. He's on the run. He's in crisis mode. He's parched spiritually because he's not in Jerusalem. He's not at the temple. He's not where God would descend upon the the altar in the Holy of Holies where the Jews knew God's presence was. But he knows that even though he has been separated from the presence of God, God has not separated his presence from him. That's a real point of joy right there. Do you know because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us as God's children and God's people, that means God is with us wherever we are. Mountaintop, low valley. Joyous time, crisis time. Walking in obedience or struggling and wallowing in sin. If we're a believer, God is there. Because we have the Holy Spirit. God does not hold himself back from those who seek him. No one who has pursued God earnestly or early has ever been disappointed. Ever. No such person has ever existed in the history of humankind. The writer of the letter called Hebrews in our New Testament says, those who come to God must first of all believe that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You will never be failed to be satisfied when you seek after God. Spurgeon, who was the great English uh, preacher, did not have a seminary education at all, barely had any education, and yet his church, he uh, began preaching to crowds in excess of 8,000 people three times a day. Why? Because he had spent a lot of time with God. (laughs) He said, Though there was a desert all around David, there was no desert in his heart. That's a good way to put it. Though his circumstances created a desert wasteland around him because he was clinging, longing to God, there was no desert within his heart, which meant he could be content With whatever situation he found himself in. Hebrews 13 says that the Lord says I will never leave you. Nor will I ever forsake you. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 63. And by the way all this is just introduction for the real sermon. Uh, But obviously. I know some of you now you look afraid. We'll just do what we can do. Look at Psalm 63, 3. I guess I was just looking at Peter following Jesus from a distance and it really touched me uh, and it really hit me 
hard. And it led me to Psalm 63 to see the opposite. Peter's in crisis mode and he keeps his distance from the Lord. King David is in crisis mode, so he clings even more to the Lord. Verse 3, because your loving kindness is what? Better than life. My lips will praise you. I don't know why. I have a song on my iPod by the Newsboys. I think it's called Your Love is Better Than Life or something like that. I love that. Usually when that comes on, I got to pick it up because it's a pretty fast song. But the, the words to that song, I really like. He's comparing two good things in verse three. What is he comparing? He's comparing life and he's comparing the loving kindness of God. It's interesting how we, and it's natural, it's normal, it's okay, we value life. We want to hold on to life as much as we can. We'll do anything to save our life. In fact, Job chapter 2 says, a man will give all he has to keep his own life. Who's speaking those words in Job 2? Satan? Ah, some of you went, whoa. Satan was in front of the Lord God and he said, hey, Give me permission to go after your man, Job, over here. You'll see what happens if I send some trials his way. He's going to turn his back on you, God, in a split second. Because those human beings down there that you created, they'll do anything to save their lives. They value it so much. But what does King David say? He's making this comparison. Yes, life is good. I think that's a whole marketing brand, isn't it? Life is good. They have the little stick figures or something like that. Life is good. Well, let's create a new marketing brand. Something better than life. That's what King David says. Life is good, but there's something even better than life itself. Something that if I have to lose my life, I want to still have this. And what is it? It is the loving kindness of God. That's longing. That's hunger. That's thirst to say even life itself is not as precious to me as having God's love. That word for loving kindness, it's a huge word in the Old Testament. Very important concept. It's the word hesed, H-E-S-E-D. It's a Hebrew word. That's talking about God's covenant love, especially to the nation of Israel, but also to we as individuals. It's God's faithfulness, his loyalty, his commitment, his unchanging, uh, conscious, willful choice to love, which nothing can break, change or remove. That's the love David's talking about that's better than life. Better than even the best thing in life. Better than life itself. Life itself can be lost, even though we protect it at all costs. But the love of God can never be lost. Do people die? It's okay for you to say, duh. Yeah. We attended a funeral just yesterday or Friday. People die. My wife is in Indiana because her cousin, 49 years old, had a stroke on Tuesday, died on Wednesday. People die. As hard as we work, as much effort as we put in to prolong life and to keep tragedy and death away, people 
die. But praise God that there's something even better than life itself. And that is God's love. Because nothing can take it away. Nothing. No sickness, no disease, no poverty, no tragedy, no violence, no death. Nothing can touch the love of God if you are a child of God. And David says to me, he's on the run for his life. Think about that. He thinks that he's going to die. His own son has raised an army and come after him to take his kingdom because he thinks he's been shortchanged. So David's thinking, even if I die at the hands of my own child, which is bizarre, and perhaps one of the deepest tragedies possible to die at the hands of your own loved one, he says, that's okay because I have something that can't be taken. Take my kingdom, take my life, but you're never going to take my God or his love. In view of such great love, I think it's Bruce again that says, F.F. Bruce, isn't it strange that we spend so much time trying to find satisfaction elsewhere? Even in earthly loves. And we spend so little time seeking and enjoying the lasting love of God. Why do we invest so little time in nurturing the one thing that can never be taken away? And we spend so much time and effort and money pouring it into things that are here today, gone tomorrow, could be taken away, disappear, really have no eternal value. It's strange, it's that paradox of being a sinful human creature, right? Paul said, I know the good I should do, but what I hate I do. And when I do that, it shows that that sin nature is still living in me and trying to wrestle control. Go to John chapter 4 with me. Gospel of John chapter 4. Look at verse 13. Of course, this is a Samaritan woman at the well. She came to get water. Jesus is there. So they're having this talk about water. Verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, this physical earthly water is going to thirst again. Well, he didn't say gonna. That's that's Hoosier. Uh, who drinks of this water will thirst again. Verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. Hmm. He's comparing waters. Take a water sample in your own life. One water can never satisfy you'll just be thirsty again the other water you drink even the smallest drop and you'll never be thirsty again obviously she didn't quite get it all but he's talking about salvation 
He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about what satisfies and what doesn't satisfy, what lasts and what doesn't last. All earthly satisfactions are ultimately unsatisfying just because of that, because they are earthly. And we are what? Eternal. Earthly satisfactions cannot satisfy eternal creatures. I love it. Some of you look like you've taken a brick upside the head, and I'm glad. It's probably the same brick that hit me in the head just a few days ago. I started thinking of my time. You know, the Apostle Paul warned the Ephesians, redeem the time because the days are evil. Redeem means to buy back or to make sure you make the right purchase. I began to think, what do I do with my time, especially my discretionary time, my free time? So think about where am I pouring hours and hours into something that ultimately isn't going to satisfy now, there's nothing wrong with enjoying things in life, but we enjoy them as gifts from the giver. God, we don't enjoy them in and of themselves as if they are going to satisfy. I will be in front of my TV at 6.012, 6.12, tomorrow night, to watch little Gonzaga take down that giant from North Carolina. And I'm going to enjoy that. It's going to be fun. I'm home alone. My wife is gone. I'm going to have pizza. I'm going to have chips. I'm going to have soda. And I'm going to eat it in the living room. <laughs> I'll probably even fall asleep in my chair, wake up at 2 a.m., eat a couple cookies, and go to bed. Am I going to enjoy that? Yes. Those are pleasures of life. They used to be secret pleasures until 10 seconds ago. <laughs> But I don't live for those things. I don't live for sports. I don't pursue sports in such a way that I think it's going to satisfy some deep spiritual longing or need that I have. I enjoy it as a pleasure of life that God has given me. I may enjoy it to take care of my body as good stewardship. I may enjoy it because he's granted me with some special talent for something and it's an opportunity to share Christ with others who may not get to hear about him unless it's on a tennis court or a basketball court or a wrestling mat or somewhere. Seriously, I don't pursue sports or food or or music or anything in and of itself as a means to satisfy. Because it's not going to happen. I'll just walk away still unfulfilled. It's the wrong water. I try to be clever in my titles. I think some of them work, some of them didn't. Peter had restless legs syndrome. Peter followed at a distance. King David did not follow at a distance. 
I'm not going to answer this for you, but think about this. Why was Peter keeping his distance? One, we already mentioned, of course, he was afraid. The second thing we already mentioned, too, because his sin had separated him from his savior. And I'm sure there are other reasons. But why do you keep your distance from the Lord? Some of you here this morning may not even really know the Lord. You look at King David in Psalm 63 and you don't get it. It doesn't compute. It's like, how can someone long and thirst and hunger after God like that? That could be because you don't know God. And don't let the fact that you made a profession of faith one time or you went forward one time, don't let that keep you from examining your salvation. Why do you keep your distance from the Lord? Maybe if you are a child of God already, maybe there's sin that's keeping you away from your Lord. Maybe it's just laziness. Maybe it's you just haven't chosen to make that time. Maybe it's even you don't know how to long after God. You don't know how to cling to God like David does in Psalm 63. That's why I'm here. I can help you with that. Ron can help you with that. Dee can help you with that. Tim and Janine, Joey and Josie. I mean, there are others here that could help you with that if you have questions about that. I know Vet and Jennifer could help you with that. So if you do know the Lord, but you don't know how to be alone with the Lord, talk to someone. Because the problem isn't that you long to be close to the Lord, but you don't know how. That's a good thing. The problem is if you don't have that longing at all. So you have to do something about that. You know, when you hear a sermon from a preacher, it's not just for the knowledge. It's because God expects something from you. He wants a response. Every Sunday. He wants a response to his word. So you need to decide what you're going to do. How can you shrink that distance between you and the Lord? For some of you, it may be you need to embrace him as your savior for the very first time. You need to confess that you're a sinner and that you're lost and that you're hell bound, as we sang. And the only thing that will save you is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's, that could be you. If you already know the Lord, you need to shrink that distance. You have to nurture your walk with Him. You have to make it a priority. You have to set aside time to pray, to read your Bible, and then to think about what you just read. And if you do that... How many of you think you will be disappointed? <laughs> Rats. You know, I got up at six o'clock and I spent a half hour with the Lord. What did I get out of that? That's not going to happen. You'll never say that. You'll never say that. Let's pray. Why don't you stand with me? Dear Heavenly Father, what we need is to taste and see that you are good. In our Lord's moment of greatest need, he was all alone. Even his most devoted followers, his 
second in command. His, one of his three closest friends followed him at a distance. And Lord, we have to confess that we often follow our Lord at a distance as well. Because of sin that we want to hold on to. Perhaps we don't even know the Lord and we're just faking it. Or we haven't taken the time to nurture our walk with the Lord. And so we're just hollow and numb and kind of dead spiritually, even though we're saved. So, Father, I pray that this would go beyond just mere words, beyond just a mere sermon, that your Holy Spirit would convict us of the change that needs to be made. Because I know, and a lot of other people here know, that once we get a taste of you, we realize nothing else satisfies. And we realize we'll never be disappointed. Father, teach us, convict us, stop us from chasing after things that just ultimately aren't going to satisfy. And even when we seek you first in your kingdom, we enjoy all these other things even more. We don't stop enjoying life, but we will enjoy life even more when we realize that you are better than life. Teach us to thank you and enjoy the things you give us without holding on to those things. So, Father, thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for his fortitude, his strength to endure what he endured all by himself, abandoned. During his darkest hour, and he would not crumble, he would not fall, but he stood firm and he did it by his own free will. He went to the cross, paid a penalty for our sins that we could not pay. We'll be praising and thanking him for that for eternity. May we leave here today rejoicing, renewed, refreshed, convicted, rebuked with new hope. That if we hunger and thirst, if we earnestly seek you, we'll never be disappointed. So we want to give you all the glory, praise and honor that you deserve. And we do that in Jesus name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here today. Hey, don't forget if you could help out with communion supplies, that sign up is out there as well as the Boyle Heights outreach.